0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, Today, we are wrapping up our four-week sermon series entitled Christ and Chaos. And so far, we have seen Jesus uh, calming a raging storm, miraculously feeding a large crowd of people, and healing a child while speaking into a father's doubt. Today, we're going to see Jesus confront chaos in the spiritual realm. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. It's also printed in your order of worship. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the stink bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. And and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let Let me pray for us. Father, the story that we just read together is, needless to say, a strange one for many of us sitting here. But as strange as it might seem for us, I pray that you would show us Jesus and his healing power and that you would speak into our hearts in whatever situations that we find ourselves in this morning. May you encourage us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in a room uh, this size, I bet we could probably start a pretty rousing debate over what is the best donut in Chicago. Now, my family is all in for Do Right Donuts, and if you haven't been there, let me just say, They have a maple glazed donut wrapped in bacon. Need I say more? But back when I was in Chicago, or I moved to Chicago from college in 1999, there wasn't much going on in the donut scene. This was before the time of Do Right and Stans, and you actually had to drive to South Bend, Indiana to get what was back then the holy grail of donuts, Krispy Kreme. Now a few months into my freshman year I was hanging out late in the library and somebody said hey, if we leave right now we can go to Krispy Kreme before they close and of course it was a no-brainer so we headed out on a road trip to Indiana and ended up buying the last of their donuts right before they locked the doors which happened to be several dozen and then we turned right back around and we drove home and let me tell you It was absolutely worth it. Now in our passage, I want us to notice that Jesus is taking a road trip of similar proportions. It's about a two-hour boat ride from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. So in the first few verses, we see that Jesus has sailed across from Capernaum. And then, in verse 18, he is climbing right back in the boat and heading back across the lake. He pops in to the region of the Gerasenes briefly merely to heal this man with an unclean spirit and like my friends and i jesus had to cross an invisible boundary to get to his destination now this is the first time in mark's gospel that jesus enters a community that is non-jewish and for most jews everything about this place is ceremonially unclean i mean it's a, there's a cemetery a bunch of pigs, and a man with an unclean spirit. And if you notice, we don't hear anything about the disciples in this story. I can see the disciples thinking, "Um, Jesus, we're going to stay right here in the boat. You go do your thing. And so Jesus steps out of the boat alone. And a man is running towards him down from the rocky hill where the tombs are. And Mark writes in verse three This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons off of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Now we don't know how long this man was living amongst the dead in the tombs. But if you have ever watched the show Survivor, Survivor, then you know that by the end of just one month, living outside, the contestants are skin and bones. Their cheekbones stand out. They're covered in bug bites from head to toe. And sometimes they have GI issues from the water and the food. So as you picture this man approaching Jesus... Imagine the season finale of Survivor and then some. He is naked with matted hair and a wild beard. And he, as he gets closer, his, his foul smell is overwhelming. And his teeth are black with decay because he's not doing anything to care for his body. In fact, Mark tells us that the opposite is true. The spirits drive him to cut himself with stones... And so his arms are are cut up and scabbed over and he doesn't smile or make any of the normal facial expressions that signal safety or welcome. Mark tells us that this man is afflicted by an unclean spirit. And essentially what this means is that what has become of this man is the work of evil. This person who is created in God's image, who has a name and a birthday and a family, has been assaulted by evil. And it has reduced him to a subhuman existence. Now this is consistent with what Jesus tells us about the work of evil in John 10.10. Evil's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And not only is evil opposed to God, it is actively working against all the goodness of creation. And it's in particular opposed to the image of God in humanity. And so evil seeks to to mar the image of God in us, steal our joy in our creativity and our connection to God and to one another. Now when we think of wars, when we think of generations of, of racism, and slavery, urban violence and school shootings, and the way that we as individuals are tempted to look away. The Bible says that there is much more at play in each of these situations than what we can see. And we are certainly responsible for what we do. But scripture teaches that there are also bigger forces working behind the scenes. And the forces of evil at play in our passage are on full display. They are obvious. But I would argue that often the forces of darkness are much more subtly active in our world. It's like how the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus, if you let the sun go down in your anger, you are giving, the oppor- you are giving an opportunity to the devil. Just By letting the sun go down on our anger, we are giving evil a place to stand next to us. And I think there are at least three reasons that Mark includes this particular story and focuses so much on Jesus' work against evil. First, so that we will recognize evil when we encounter it. I mean, church, so often we don't even know that we're being attacked or that evil is at work behind the scenes. And second, so that we would not fall into hopelessness when we see such terrible evils play out in our world. And third, so that we would know that he actually strengthens us to stand against the work of evil. In our Old Testament lesson that was read this morning, the writer of Ecclesiastes imagines a world in which there is no one strong, there is no one strong enough to restrain evil. And if this were true, he says, then it would be better for us to have not been born at all. But an essential truth that this story points to is that good and evil aren't equal and opposite forces. I mean, thank goodness we don't live in the world of Star Wars, where the spiritual realms uh, come in two flavors that are equally powerful. And it's anyone's guess as to whether the dark side or the light side will win. As C.S. Lewis says in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, he says, there is no power fully opposite to God. God has been self-existent from all eternity. Evil has not. God creates. And evil has no power to create. It can merely seek to spoil the good things that God has made. And C.S. Lewis writes, Satan is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael the archangel. So yes, evil has power, but nothing that comes close to God's. In the same way that Jesus, just in the previous story, calms a storm with a word, he merely commands the evil spirits to come out of the man. He doesn't have to throw a punch, he doesn't have to hold a seance. And immediately upon hearing his word, the evil spirits, which called themselves Legion, meaning 6,000 foot soldiers, Caused the man to fall to his knees, and they begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. Mark writes, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the people tending the pigs ran away, and they told their neighbors what had happened. And when they came to see for themselves, what did they see? They saw Jesus with the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. Fear is the common denominator in this story. I think what's worth noticing is how fear... Their fear and our own fear serves evil in keeping us impoverished. The disciples are afraid of the unknown, of becoming unclean, and so they stay in the boat and and miss the miracle. The people of the region, who were understandably terrified by this man, are also terrified By Jesus, who has the power to subdue this strong man when no one else could. I can imagine they might be thinking, what else will we lose? What will it cost us to keep this kind of power around? What might he ask of us? And so they ask God to leave. They ask God to leave their region. But in contrast to evil that steals, kills, and destroys, Jesus says that He came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's why throughout Scripture, He constantly says to people, do not be afraid fear will cause us to grip tightly to the little that we have rather than rather than opening our hands to wholeness to restoration and shalom and what's remarkable is that mark tells us as jesus is getting in the boat to head back across the Sea of Galilee. The man who had been possessed by demons begged Jesus to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You know what? This is, this is the only request in our passage that Jesus refuses When this man, who is the object of Jesus' journey, begs to stay with him, Jesus refuses his request. Instead, Jesus tells this man to go home. To go home to his friends and tell his story of healing. And we're told that he actually goes home. He goes home and he begins to proclaim to the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him. And you know what? Everyone was amazed. He becomes the first commissioned disciple sent to the Gentiles. And church, I gotta be honest, I am, I am captivated to think about what it, mean, what it meant for this man to go back into his community that feared and chained him back to the people that he may also have harmed while he was in the grip of evil. In a sense, Jesus is instructing this man to unravel and make sense of his story. I don't know about you, but I think we probably tend to think that Jesus casting out the demons is the happy ending. <laughs> and that this man is his man's healing is complete, it is finished. But Jesus has way more healing for him. But it will require that he go back to the places of his wounding. And so Jesus calls him to tell his story in order to stir up in others a thirst for something new. But telling his story isn't just for others. It is for him as well. Church, he needs others to hear how it felt to be abandoned in his misery. He needs others to witness and hear the fact that he had to sleep cold and alone and what that was like in a cave and hear the whispers of evil that told him that his life wasn't worth living anymore. Jesus doesn't just scoop him out of those challenges. Instead, He provides the means through which further healing can take place. And I think that is why he sends him back into his community. So that his presence and his story can transform it. Telling his story not only has the ability to transform his his family and his friends, but it also has the power to transform him. And so, like this man, all of us, every one of us here, have parts of our lives and our stories that need to be unraveled and healed. Jesus doesn't just take our past away, He doesn't erase it. Rather, He gives us the ability to face it and experience new life out of it. And the soil for that is community. It is community. It is those who are sitting around you. And there is great blessing and great healing in letting ourselves be seen and known in both our pain and our rescue. And, church, we need others. We need to hear other people's stories as well. You see, what Jesus did for this man, he also offers us this morning. But unlike my carload of friends, Jesus doesn't go out of his way to give us a fleeting taste of goodness, a glucose rush that quickly fades and leaves us wanting more. When Jesus goes out of his way, it's to bring us goodness that is completely satisfying and totally filling. It is to invite us to step into a new way of living and being in this world, the abundant life that we were made for. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this very strange story and yet so captivating, so captivatingly beautiful. Father, whether we know it or not, each one of us in this room has a story of healing, of rescue, of restoration, and of brokenness. And Father, may we be a community that both comes alongside each other and also rejoices in what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do in each of our lives. Will you transform us as you do through this story, through our own stories and the great story of redemption that all of our stories find their meaning in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.